evening where we can get together and study uh, truths from your word. We just pray that uh, you give attentive ears and that we would be hearers of the word and doers as well. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, let's go ahead and grade this quiz here. I'm famous for my tricky questions, but I kept them, I kept them pretty simple tonight. So, but we'll see we'll see what happens here. We're trying to figure out the trick. <laughs> okay, number one, Eve was made in the image of God. That's true. So God made man, male and female, made he them in the image of God after our image. Paul's ban of women teaching men. It's in First Timothy in the church is a result of the fall. Okay, what what is it a result of? Why why is why does the, what what reasons does he give? Man was first created. Woman was taken from man, and because Eve was. Deceived, while Adam was not, and so again, we're not suggesting here. It's not that they're somehow two trains today. Couldn't hear what I said. Uh, So, so the three reasons that Paul gives: because man was created first, and Eve second. So, uh, number one, number two, Eve was from Adam. Um, and the implication here has to do with imputation. Uh, Adam is the representative head of the human race. Um, and then thirdly, because Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. And it, it seems to, it's, it's, I mean, that sounds, sounds a little bad there. It's almost like, you know, Eve was naive. Uh, but Adam was not. I, I, I think that may be a little bit too strong of a way to put it, but I think the idea is that women are designed by God to be submissive to an authority over them and to trust them. And so when God gives a command to two people, man and woman, husband and wife, the man is to take charge and lead his wife in the, uh, in the appropriate way. And so it's for that reason that when she took the, took the apple and gave it to the man that was with him, he's the one who's responsible because he should, he was, he was responsible for the relationship. And he should have stopped her. If he was with her, he should have stopped her. It was his responsibility to do so. So it's not because of the fall that women submit, have to submit to men. Now, what does happen as a result of the fall? They don't want to. They don't want to. They, they, they're, they're poor submitters. And what, what's the punishment though, on them? Pain of childbirth. Pain of childbirth, yes. So, so men, men tend to abuse the authority that they have. Okay, so, so that's, and, and so that the, the curse has to do with this relationship. And, that, and that's why we recoil so much. That's why we're always on pins and needles when we have this conversation last week and this week. Because, you know, that, that the fall touches us all very closely on this topic. And so it's, it's hard. Okay? So I pretty much answered number three here. So Eve represented us all when she sinned by eating the fruit of the Garden of Eden. False. False. Of course, it was Adam who did. Even though she ate first, 
He was the, he was the one appointed by God as the federal head, the, the covenant head of the human race, representative head, and for that reason, uh, when we get to Romans, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. Okay? Number four, moving into this discussion we had on homosexuality. Some sins are worse than others. True. True. I hear mostly truths, and it is true. Okay? Now, now there's a qualification I want to make here. Now, any sin, no matter how big or small or whatever its size, is enough to condemn a person. So, in terms of our relationship with God, one sin condemns as much as another. There's no sin that condemns more than another. Nonetheless, there are sins, and we talked about this in Romans chapter 1, that we graduate to. We graduate to worse sins. So once we are ungrateful, that's the first That's the first sin listed in Romans chapter 1. We see God, we don't acknowledge Him, we're not grateful. And we start sinning. And then, as time passes, God turns us over to more advanced sins. Basically, takes off the leash. Allows us to do whatever we want. And I think it's also then implied also in the fact that certain sins are punished more substantially than others. Uh, so they're, you know, sins that are of a capital nature are, by by definition, worse sins than sins that are punished lightly. So, yes, there is, there is a, there is a, difference of sins it doesn't mean again yeah it's a, so it's a, it's a yes and a no but as far as the answer should be yes some sins are worse than others in God's divine order which is why some sins are holding a death penalty and others don't questions on that follow up okay homosexual desire is a sin yes that's true that's a big debate going on right now in the uh, in the literature and out there on the uh, bandwaves and such. And the idea here is okay, as long as you don't act on on the uh, sin of desire, then you're okay. Uh, but that's not the principle that we see in Matthew chapter five. If a man, for instance, uh, uh, looks with lustful intent upon a woman, he has in fact sinned already committing adultery in his heart. Now, it's true that committing adultery in the flesh is worse than committing adultery in the heart, but it's not as though committing adultery in the heart is not a sin. Okay? And the same, I think, goes... I think the the, the pattern there in Matthew chapter 5 is to go through several sins of the same nature. Is it okay to hate someone? No. It's a worse sin to act on that hatred, kill someone, but it's still wrong to hate. Okay, yes? So you have the same definition for desire and lust. Yeah. Yeah. Inclinations. Right. Yeah, the word lust, we tend to think of it in, in very negative terms, but it's a, it's a word... It probably better translated desire in most cases in the scripture, which is sort of a, more of a neutral English term. You can have good desires, bad desires. Uh, when we think of the term lust, it's uniformly a negative desire. But uh, same 
same Greek and Hebrew words govern both of the concepts. So, yes. Okay, so desire, desire wouldn't be a temptation. It's, it's cross the line. Well, well, you know. For something. But, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just trying to get the definition there. Desire. But if if you if you want that, I mean, if 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 you want, say in this case, homosexual activity, it's wrong for you to want it. And 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 you say, well, that's just just doesn't seem fair. I mean, because how can I help what I want? And even and we, you know, sometimes the question is, can you be born inclined toward a specific sin? Yeah, we all come out of the womb speaking lies I mean, we, we all come out of the womb with inclinations of the heart set against God that doesn't make it right or it doesn't absolve us of guilt just because that's the way we were born it was wrong to be born that way ultimately it's wrong to be born depraved even though we couldn't help it uh, it's wrong okay good so those are some Review thoughts here, and uh, we'll pick up here in our notes. I just realized uh, after I left last week that I had one tiny little point left on on A that I didn't that I didn't uh, finish up. I should have. We were going through the implications of the creation of man, and uh, the last point here at the very bottom of the page of six: the absurdity of human evolution, and not only the absurdity of human evolution. The, the, the theological incongruity of human evolution. The suggestion of human evolution, I say, in addition to diffusing or denying man's need for an accountability to God. I think that's what the effect of evolution is, right? It distances us from God. And by distancing us, distancing us from God, uh, creating that gap between us, it, it, it has the effect, you know, just like when you have a have a dog on a leash, right? You get rid of the leash and let let him get a little bit further away. That's when bad things happen, right? And I think the same thing happens when we imagine God to be distant. We lose our our sense of accountability to Him, our 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 obligation to Him, our our thanks, our gratitude to Him, and all all sorts of bad things happen when we do that. And I think that's part of the intent. Whether, whether it's a deliberate attempt, but I think part of the intent of evolutionists is to distance us from God. So in addition to that, the idea of human evolution destroys the solidarity of the human race. Okay, so and there, there's much made in both Romans and Acts of the fact that the entire human race comes from one person, Adam. Um, and then and Hebrews 2 tells us why, Right? Because Christ did not die for angels. Why didn't Christ die for angels? In Hebrews 2. Because they're not a race. They're not related to each other. When God created the angels, he created all of them independently of each other. Uh, it's not technically correct to speak about the a race of angels, but rather a company of angels. It's just a group of them. And they're not connected. And so God, in Christ, could not enter into the angelic race and be have solidarity with them, have a connection with all of them. That was impossible. It was only man 
that that Christ could die for. He had to become the brother of mankind in every way, like them in every way, or else the possibility of redemption would have been impossible. He is the second Adam. Okay, so he's the second representative, but he also is connected. We have solidarity with every one of us. And so without there being an Adam, a first Adam, who is the head of the human race, there can be no second Adam. Okay, and so it becomes very important very fast that we don't have human evolution because it really starts to unravel the fabric of the gospel almost immediately. Okay. So the, the, the idea of human evolution does not fit with what the scriptures say, but more than the fact that it doesn't fit with the words, it doesn't fit with the whole construct of God's uh, redemptive plan for us. Okay, Which means then that the human race descended entirely from Adam and Eve by procreation. We've got several texts that say, say such. Uh, Genesis 3.20, Eve was given the name that she has because she was the mother of all living. Acts 17, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And I think perhaps he, a, uh, uh, you know, there was a, another point in history where where the human race is reduced to a single family, and by the sons of Noah, the whole earth was populated. So it you know, narrowed down to a single person, Noah, and so everyone can look to Noah as our father in some sense as well, too, uh, not in the sense of an Adam, a representative for us all, but nonetheless, we're all related to one another uh, through Noah. And we've got a lot of corroborating evidence as, as well, the completion of the creation, I think, points to this. Genesis 2, 1 to 3 tells us that God looked at his creation and it was done. It was completed on the sixth day of creation. Now, it does not mean that God is, you know, limited himself in such a way that he could not, you know, do a miracle of creation after that fact. The fact is, there's no regular, ongoing work of creation that continues. I think there's a, there's a, a certain finality about that statement. And on the sixth day, on the seventh day, God looked at it, and His creation was done. Uh, so, when you know, when my uh, my daughter-in-law has my grand first grandson here, in probably three weeks here, it's not a miracle. Okay, you know. Sorry to, to, to dash your thoughts here, here, but it's not a miracle because it's not a miracle of creation that takes place. Rather, it's the providence of procreation that takes place. That doesn't lessen in any sense how spectacular it is, but we actually make a mistake when we call that a miracle. Okay? It's not a miracle of creation. It's an act of providence in procreation uh, that takes place. And... Uh, and uh, th that's going to come up later when we talk about the the uh, production of souls here. Also, I think corroborating evidence is found in the uniform transmission of depravity. Sin nature is transmitted to the entire race by human procreation and not by divine creation. So if God were to somehow create souls and then stick them on bodies as they came out, then there would really be no way for those 
babies, those children, to grow up depraved because, you know, they would have been sort of come out neutral and they would have had a had a had a soul implanted by God that was created and dropped in. Uh, but that's not what happens. We find here, for instance, in Psalm 51, that I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, some have looked at that and said the act of conception was the sin, but that's not the point here. The point here is that, you know, the, the, <laughs> the first, you know, explosion of cells that, you know, eventually came to be me, uh, it is was was sinful from from the, from the first moment here. Same said here, Psalm fifty eight: the wicked are estranged from the womb; those who speak lies go astray from birth. Okay, so from the very moment uh, you enter this world, uh, you're already a sinner, and it's not because God puts uh, created a new soul and. Uh, and it got corrupted by the body it was attached to. Rather, mom and dad produced body, soul, and spirit in this in this little child. Okay. There is one exception, of course, um, and that is Jesus Christ. Okay, so that person does not derive from Adam. How do we know this? Well, because. Well, for several reasons. One, Jesus Christ received his impersonal human nature from Mary, his body. And in that body, he experienced all the corrupting effects of sin. So he comes into this world and he suffers. Uh, gets sick. Uh, you know, had, you know, stumbles here and there. And he is clumsy, perhaps. Okay, at times, okay, it's hard to think of Jesus this way, but he has an ordinary body. There's nothing miraculous about the body he receives from Mary. It's just an ordinary body. What is different about him is the fact that his personhood, being the eternal God that he is, is important. So he's the one exception to this pattern that we have of mom and dad producing a new person. Jesus Christ was already a person from all eternity. He's the second person of the Trinity, come down, and a body is prepared for him, right? That's the language that Hebrews uses. Okay, so a body is prepared for him, and he attaches it himself to this impersonal body, which is the reason for the virgin birth. Okay, and we have to be careful exactly what we say with that. The point is not that, you know, women, you know, that men are the corrupting force, women are just carriers. Uh, I, it, that's, that's not the point here is that mom and dad didn't produce a new person. And of course, mom and dad could only have produced one kind of person, a corrupt person. But they didn't produce a person because there was no mom and dad coming together to make this person. Rather, a body was prepared for Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary and the second person of the Godhead was was imported onto that body, and uh, that is that is where we get the, the 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 person of Jesus Christ, and he is not a sinner because he wasn't represented by Adam, and because he does not have his personhood uh, by virtue 
of procreation. So those are the two reasons. And so it's very important that we, we, we notice this, and it's, it's why it's so important that we affirm uh, the virgin birth of Christ. As, as, as crass a doctrine as that can seem to be, it's very important for our redemption. Okay, so his divine personhood, which existed from eternity past, was impeccably attached to that human nature by a what they, we call the hypostatic union. And for this reason, apparently, God assigns to Jesus the role of second Adam. So he's the second representative. Adam was the first representative of the human race. He failed. Jesus now is this this, this pure person is brought into 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 uh, into this life. And he is assigned this role as the second Adam. And we find him carry out his role um, much more successfully. Very successfully. So 1 Corinthians 15, I think, bears this out. As it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. Okay? So, all that we see about Adam was very earthy. God created him out of earth, in fact, right? Okay? And so that's, this is where Adam comes from. He represents the human race and does, it, does an awful job. Jesus, on the other hand, the spiritual comes first. He comes from above. He is not earthly, but heavenly and is imported on that. So the contextual point of the passage is to compare the first Adam, who stands as humanity's original representative and the source of every corruption, with the second Adam, who stands as a faithful representative for believing humanity and the source of every incorruptible body at the resurrection. Okay. In Hebrews 4.15, Jesus was like us in every way, save one. It's a very important one. He was without a sin nature. That's what makes him different. Okay, so any questions here about the uh, about the creation of Adam and Eve and its implications for us? I should interrupt here and just make sure. It, was anybody here new this week that didn't get the notes last time? That, so, yeah. Okay, so do you need a set? I do, please. And if you signed up for a book, uh, it should be in the uh, resource oh, resource center. So it should be in the resource center. Thank you very much. Sorry, no problem. Okay then. Next topic then, page eight here: the composition of man. What is man made of well before we get into the debate which is I think an interesting one but probably not a particularly important one whether we're two parts or three parts I think we want to start by by realizing that there's a sense in which we should think of mankind as an as a, an essential unity we may have parts but there's a unity to us as well, and I think it's very important uh, that we recognize this. Unlike God and angels, who are characterized as pure spirits, that is, not having any necessary connection to a material form, humans are a combination 
a, 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 unit, a union, a unity of spiritual and physical. Okay, so an essential unity of body and spirit. And at death, man's spirit is temporarily disembodied, but that state is neither desirable nor permanent, right? Okay, so Paul says, you know, remember he has this wrestling match with himself there in First, Second Corinthians 5, and he says, in this house I groan, uh, apparently pointing to the fact that he's suffering in the flesh, suffering in his physical body, which apparently... Uh, and we, we have a lot of hints from him that uh, he's got a number of physical problems that, that, that sort of dog him. And so he's, he says on multiple occasions, you know, it would be nice to get away from this body um, and be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. So he anticipates, he looks forward to the resurrection, but he, he recognizes attention there. He says... But I really don't want to be this naked soul, he says. <laughs> I, I, I don't really look forward to this block of time here when my body lies in the grave, but I haven't gotten my resurrection body because that's, that's, that's unnatural for a human. And he says it's good to be with Jesus Christ, and it's probably better to be with Christ without a body than to be here with one nonetheless. The ideal is to have a body and be with Christ, which is the state that we are in in the resurrection. And of course, you also see as you as you work your way through the Old Testament that the the Old Testament saints were, were not nearly as optimistic about death as as we see in the uh, in the New Testament. Um, partly, I think it's because they just don't have as much revelation as as we do. Uh, but I think partly because of the situation they're going to go to, uh, that they're going to be going to this, you know, Ecclesiastes talks about going to this place of gloom and shadow where there is no knowledge. Um, so it's not quite the, and, and the suggestion here is that uh, prior to the resurrection of Christ, that they are in something of a, of a, of a holding situation, it's not that they're uncomfortable. Uh, Samuel says that he's resting. Um, nonetheless, they recognize that where they're going is not the ideal situation. It's not bad. They still have great confidence that it's going to improve, but it's just not the way it's supposed to be. And so we recognize that mankind is ordinarily a unity of material and immaterial, and when those things are divorced, it's unnatural and and uh, incomplete for us. Okay? I have a little paragraph here that I'm going to skip here just because of, uh, it's just a little bit dense, uh, but uh, you can read it if you if you want to, but there are, there are some who have sort of... Um, tried to tip one way or another to say that man is primarily spiritual or primarily material. And uh, I think we're, we have to uh, come to the conclusion that we're both. And that's not a bad thing. Okay, So man is a spirit, bullet points there. Man is a spirit, that's his essence. And he has a body, that's his substance. Neither spirit nor body have in any intrinsic demerit attached to them in Scripture. It's not bad to have a body. 
we'll talk a little bit later on about this this concept of the flesh uh, that Paul is frequently references. Uh, but we're probably not speaking here about the body. He's he's really speaking metaphorically for the sin nature. Okay, so he's not saying that your body is bad, um, but rather you have within you the remnants of sin uh, that uh, that he that he calls the flesh or the sin nature. Uh, but the flesh itself is not bad of itself. Uh, even Christ is going to be clothed in humanity for all eternity. So it's not a bad thing to have a body. Um, it's kind of a weighty thing to have a fallen body and a suffering body. I get that. But even even there, Paul's like, you know, we all like to sort of keep a hold of our bodies. <laughs> it's, it's, it's only in, in the very most extreme conditions that we're willing to give up our bodies um, because it's rather a permanent kind of thing. You know, got a term I've got my, my mother's in got terminal cancer right now and that's a and uh, they're 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 weighing this this signature that they have to put on the hospice form that says we will not pursue any treatment and uh, haven't been able to pull the trigger on that even though the condition is almost certainly terminal it's it's hard to pull that trigger. It's hard to put your pen on that paper because we like our bodies. We, we kind of want to keep them as long as we can. And it's normal. Okay. Scripture allows for the possibility of consciousness, thought, communication, apart from having a body. Next point, I don't, we don't know what that, how that works, but you know, God has no body, and yet he sees, he hears, he knows. And apparently that will be our our condition too uh, before we receive our resurrection body we'll be able to see and hear and know uh, even though we have no eyes or ears uh, for a, for a temporary time okay so how that works I don't know we, we just don't we don't have any sense of, of being we, we don't understand how we can how one can have sensory perception without sensory organs uh, but apparently that is the case yes yeah what happens to the unbeliever, even the Old, the Old Testament? Because we're talking about the believer, mm-hmm. and they are looking forward to having their body. What about the unbeliever? Well, they're going to get their body back too, but it's going to be it, it's going to be eternal conscious torment. So, okay, are they aware of that? Do you know? I mean, if you don't know, it's hard to say. It's I mean, it's it's, it's not as though when you die, you suddenly get knowledge that you never had, uh, but. Perhaps they They'll figure it out. Yeah, they have they have they have knowledge that they've been suppressing, and probably some things they'll be able to figure out if if not by simply uh, remembering what they learned in life by simple deduction as things unfold. Still good. Right, right, right. Did you get? Uh, no, I didn't. Okay, let's well start here with that. And Thank that's you. Right, brought these eight. My last bullet point then, man's material and immaterial points may be temporarily disjoined, but never permanently. Okay, so we've already sort of been saying that all along, and that's reflected there in Second Corinthians five, in that conversation that 
Paul has effectively with himself about his, his impending death. So, man is an essential unity. That's where we want to start. It's not as though uh, when we get to the part, the two parts here, and we say that God, that man has a material part and an immaterial part, that somehow it's bad to have a body. We don't want to go there. It's it's good to be human. Uh, it's bad to be a fallen human, but it's good to be a human. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, Jesus is a human for all, uh, for the rest of eternity future. Men does have two aspects, though. So you can see if you're if you're up on the debate here uh, between dichotomy and trichotomy, uh, you'll you'll recognize here that I am a dichotomist. There are two aspects to mankind: material and immaterial, or perhaps we could call it physical and metaphysical. Okay, I think we cert- certainly we can all agree there's at least two. Some would suggest that there's a third, and we'll, I'll, I'll address that question in just a minute. Let's establish first that we've got at least two. Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who are able to kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, so there's two aspects of our existence, and we should be more concerned about the one who can destroy our soul than the one who can merely destroy our body. Now, that's a big merely, right? <laughs> nobody nobody wants to have their body destroyed. Uh, but it's better to have your body destroyed than your soul. That's the point. James 2.6, the body without the spirit is dead. and really gives us a definition of what death is. That's the disjunction of the material and immaterial parts of the person. It's not annihilation. Death is not just the, the 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 dissolution of the human; rather, it's a separation of its two parts. Okay, and death is never in Scripture just you know poof out of existence. That's never the definition of death. This is probably our best definition here of what physical death is: the body disjoined from the spirit. And then uh, Paul gives us confidence here. Uh, and the older we get, the more this man becomes a real comfort, right? Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, and at the end we get a new one, we get a new body. Okay. So the question then, is there a third part? You know, some have suggested uh, not just that there's a body and spirit, or material and immaterial, but that there's actually three parts: body, soul, and spirit. This is an this is very common in Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, most most of Western history, the history of the Western Church, has been dichotomist, um, um, but the Eastern Church was trichotomist. Uh, however, is uh, a little bit of intrigue here. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy sort of trickled into the West through Wesleyanism um, and Anglicanism, if I can put it that way. When, when, when the Anglican Church separated from the Roman Catholic Church, Henry VIII, you know, the, the story there with him wanting this absolution of his, his you know, 
get, he wanted to get, have, a, have a new wife so he could get an heir, and the church wouldn't give it to him, so he just sort of took the Church of England out of the Roman Catholic Church um, and sort of established sort of its own independent church. Nonetheless, there, is, there was within that Anglican church a very weighty desire uh, for a link with antiquity. Okay, I mean that's sort of pressed into them, and so they're they're looking for some sort of how can I say an ancient tradition to tie themselves to, and so what they did is they turned to Eastern Orthodoxy. Sort of there was sort of a little a little train of Eastern Orthodoxy that sort of uh, that uh, made its way across into England, and uh, and then Wesley probably more than anyone else is responsible for bringing that into the evangelical uh, expression of Protestants. Of course, Wesleyanism comes out of Anglicanism. Well, in fact, Wesley was an Anglican his whole life, never left the Anglican Church. Um, and so that's, that's sort of an offshoot of Anglicanism. And so we have this idea of, of trichotomy uh, being introduced into Western Protestantism through Wesley. And these divide the immaterial aspect of man into two distinct parts, namely soul and spirit. So it's not just that man is material and immaterial, but rather that he is body, soul, and spirit. And those who take this view are called trichotomists, so-called because they view man as having three parts. Those who fail to distinguish soul from spirit are called dichotomists, so-called because they recognize man as having only two essential aspects, body and spirit. He's no sure defending the dichotomous position. The latter has been the majority view in Western Christianity. I view here in these notes terms such as soul, spirit, heart, and mind as more or less synonymous terms, uh, not as separate parts of the immaterial of mankind. Now I say there may be incidental nuances of emphasis seen in these terms. They reflect functional rather rather than essential nuances. What do I mean by that? Mind seems to, when we use the word mind, we tend to think more of the intellectual or cerebral activity. When When we think of the heart, we tend to think of the affections. But we're not talking about separate parts of the person rather we're, we're talking we're making emphases within the immaterial uh, function of man and so we shouldn't think of these as separate parts but as different functions of man's one immaterial aspect in defense of this position note the answers to the following objections Hebrews 4.12 probably the go-to verse for the trichotomist um, and uh, it's, it talks about the word of God being quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the what? The dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Okay, so that's this is usually the proof text that's offered by trichotomists. See, there's a difference between soul and spirit, and the word of God can can you know cut down between them and separate them from each other. Okay. But let me answer that. The point here is not the separation of the soul from the spirit. In fact, we could ask ourselves, how indeed does the word of God 
separate the two parts of the immaterial of man. I mean, just just the, the thought of that is some, somewhat nonsensical. Instead, the verse likely speaks to the fact that the power of Scripture penetrates incisively to the immaterial center of the reader and doesn't separate his his soul from his spirit, but rather incisively penetrates the motives and thoughts of the individual. And that's what the word of God is powerful to do. It actually helps us to understand our own innermost thoughts and motives and then helps us then to remedy those uh, when they need to be. Okay, so so the idea is not a separation of the soul from the spirit, but rather a discernment of the immaterial parts of us. You know, when you know we, you know, David, you know, comes to the end of Psalm fifty-one, right? He says, "Search me and know my heart; try me and know my thoughts." Why does he say that? Doesn't he know his own thoughts? Well, not as well as God does, right? Okay, and so he asks God to help him to recognize his own frailties, his own weaknesses, uh, the, the, own, the, 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 the shortcomings of his mind, his heart, and to point them out so that he can fix them. Okay? Second proof text that trichotomists use is 1 Thessalonians 5.23, in which uh, we find that the person, is, we will be preserved body, soul, and spirit Okay, that sounds like we've got three parts there. Except that if we keep that we may be proving too much, because Luke ten twenty seven speaks of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Well now we've got five parts now because we don't even have the body there. So so are we now quintichotomists here? Well, no. I think I think the point here, this body, soul, and spirit is a is a reference to the whole of the person. Okay, so it's not a listing of the parts of man, but a reference to the whole of the person. So it wouldn't stop with just three. In fact, the compounding of these terms in Luke is likely made to stress that we are to love the Lord God with our whole being, not with our... how, How can I love the Lord with my soul today as far as my strength tomorrow? No, it's love God with all of your being is the point. Okay. And just as First Thessalonians is a is a reference here to the affirmation of the preservation of the whole person. Next, we're going to get here, perhaps, to the heart of why it is that uh, this idea of three parts emerged, and uh, why this discussion, which seems so insignificant may actually have a little bit more significance than we might think. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and following, uh, Paul speaks of the Corinthians in terms of being natural men and spiritual men, and then he introduces a third term, first verse of chapter 3, as fleshly men or carnal men. And the idea uh, that has been taken from that is that there are three aspects of man and that sanctification, one by one, takes over these parts. Okay, so, um, 
and uh, this this became part and parcel with Wesleyan theology, and then moved over into what became Keswick theology. So that okay, you are born the natural man. That is, every part of you is corrupted, and then one part is fixed. Okay, you become you you, you become soulish, and yet still carnal. Okay. But then God takes you and takes you a next step and brings you to a place of being spiritual. The idea of the true Gnostic, you become a knowing one. And so the idea of, of sanctification is a series of steps and crisis events that sort of you know, take you step by step uh, up a ladder. That's the uh, the metaphor that Wesley used. Up a ladder until you res- until you achieve what? Perfection, okay, and so Wesleyan perfectionism would be that point at which you become a perfectly spiritual person, such that your body, your soul, and your spirit have been reclaimed by God, and you receive perfection, okay. And so this is this is the idea that uh, Wesley taught, and it became sort of part, sort of part of the. Uh, of the uh, revivalist movement of the 19th century, early 20th century. And uh, it's really wrong. It's really wrong. I start to tell, start by explaining why it is exegetically. From a lexical standpoint, this word sarkinos, or fleshly, or carnal, does not have peculiar reference to the body. Rather, it has reference to the remnants of sin, whether in the body or mind. Okay. In fact, if you have an NIV, uh, you find that it does not use the word flesh uh, to describe the sin nature. Rather, it supplies this word, the sin nature. Secondly, and I should say here, otherwise we would fall risk uh, of, of falling into the Gnostic error of viewing the body as innately evil. Okay, So the body is bad, and so we, we've got to somehow beat our bodies into subjection uh, so that we might uh, somehow become more spiritual. You know, that this whole idea of ridding ourselves of the oppression of the body, liberating ourselves from the prison house of the body until we become perfectly spiritual where we don't even think about our bodies anymore. Uh, nice thought, but it never happens. can't happen. Secondly, the text does not say that the Corinthian believer... Believers occupied a lower tier of carnal Christianity and had not yet graduated to the deeper spiritual life. Instead, Paul indicates that he had to speak to them in chapter 3, verse 1, as though they were not Christians. That is, he had to speak to them not as obedient, growing, sanctifying Christians who are in step with the Spirit, but as Christians who had succumbed to the remnants of sin still resident in them, They were not advancing in their sanctification, so he was not dissecting the human person, but speaking to the need for the conversion of the whole person through sanctification. It's not just enough to, you know, to to, to say the prayer and get your ticket into heaven. There has to be a reclamation of the body, soul, and spirit through sanctification. And Paul was saying, I'm not finding that here. I'm having to speak to you as though you're still unbelievers. And it shouldn't be. 
And then even if we concede the body language adopted by some, the order is wrong in 1 Corinthians. It would not be soul, body, spirit, but rather body, soul, and spirit. So everything's wrong about this theory uh, from 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. So the idea, and this, this is, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for this idea, probably trichotomism would would not exist in Western theology. Uh, but uh, uh, for whatever reason God has intended, uh, it has made its way, wormed its way into Western theology. Thoughts, questions on that? I know we sort of waded through a bit here. Now, is that prevalent in, oh, okay. is that prevalent in Reformed theology? Because that no. first text we had... Very few, very few Reformed are trichotomists. Because I know that first text we had, the author was... Which? In the first class. All. Raymond? No. One of them was. Something like that. Yeah, I don't remember that. I, I, was it Raymond? I didn't think Raymond was. No, it was... Well, there wasn't one before. One where it's a uh, handout. That was me. Yeah, I don't think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Most most reformed are not trichotomists. Most are almost all of them are die. Question over here. No, I was going to ask what the trichotomists would say as the difference between swords. That's a good question. That's that's the $64,000 question, so to speak, right? Um, it's very difficult to distinguish between the two, and I don't think we're intended to. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm glad to be in this class right now because I, I have a question about okay. that. Okay. We being created in image and likeness of God, God being three distinct elements of who he is, What? how, does, how do we... Fit into that. I don't. I just don't see that as part of the image of God, right? I, I, just because God is three persons does not mean that we have to be three parts. I, 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 I'm, I, I, we're, we'll talk about the image of God and man, but I, I'm not sure that it that we should think in terms of having three parts because God is three persons is something that we really need to be doing. It, 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 it may be an incidental kind of argument that could be argued. Well, maybe since God is three parts, we're three parts. But I, I think the image of God is much more, how can I say, much less superficial than that. Much, much deep goes much deeper than that than just the, the number of pieces we have. If, if I can put it that way. Other thoughts. Doesn't, don't they teach that at Dallas Seminary, the trichotomy? Yes. Of course, of course, Dallas Seminary was a sort of a hotbed of, of Kesson theology. And that was sort of a, you know. Yeah, I was exposed to a lot of that right. years ago, and I don't, right. I don't agree with it now. Right. Yeah, that was a method for Kesson theology in the day. Do you think it's more than, uh, like, from a language perspective, then, like, the reason that both words are present is to be expressive of kind of the same thing but in different ways like you know soul is seems so much more of like I don't know you know more feeling and essence and all that and spirit is seems almost like it's more formal or serious in ter- terms of right it's it's just a compounding of words I, uh, we now that I'm forced to do it I'm trying to 
think of how we how we might say that. You know, we talk to our kids in, in in that kind of a language. Get your two feet down here and your and your butt in the seat, right? Well, what are you? Wait, no. What are we saying? Well, okay, just those parts. <laughs> no, no, no. We're saying get in here and sit down, all of you. <laughs> and, and I think that's effectively yeah, it's understood. It's understood. It's, right. it's synonymous, but it's understood that right. you can say it in two different ways to correct be expressive or however you do that. Right. And and the fact that Luke in Luke Jesus sort of compounds it: love the whole Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Again, he's just really just compounding out the the nuances of the immaterial without trying to enumerate them. You know, there's there's four parts there. No, that's not the point. Yeah, that makes sense. I understand the answer to this could be lengthy, so I'm not necessarily going <laughs> to But, so, if a trichotomist believes there's three, does that have, have other theological implications for them? Or does it kind of just stop there? Um, there are some implications when it comes to sanctification. Um, that, yeah, and we sort of we sort of introduced it there with this Wesleyan idea that you that you reclaim pieces along the way and you climb a ladder and once you get all three of those steps down, you reach perfection. Now, not all who hold the trichotomy have that view of sanctification. But that's why the view came into Western theology because that's a very common view in in Eastern Orthodoxy the latter model of sanctification. Gnosticism never really went away. Are you familiar with when I say Gnosticism? Does that, does that mean something to you? In 2nd in century, 3rd century there was this idea um, that uh, in order to be sanctified you would uh, there, there would be the 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 ordinary people who just man, they, they they might have a, a bit of knowledge, some pieces, but they're but they're living carnally. But if you can graduate to uh, this this place where, where you become a cognoscenti, a knowing one, or a gnostic, a true gnostic, then you could sort of be above the fray, a, a, a form of perfectionism, but also sort of a, a really nefarious kind of I'm better than the rest of you. Kind of a, a kind of an approach, and and so that that's that's why I, I really have little time for the trichotomous view because I know where it came from and why it came into being. Even though there's a lot of trichotomists out there that it's just something they were taught that they really don't think in terms of theological implications they just have been taught somewhere along the line that there's three parts but there's no real theological significance to it and I'm, I'm not particularly worried if you're a trichotomist so long as those those more nefarious features of trichotomism don't show up I mean of itself two or three parts doesn't seem like much of a question who cares that perhaps you might be thinking even, even now and there's a sense in which you're right, but the the, the there is there's a lot of baggage connected with the three part view. Okay. Okay. So let's start talking about the parts. Then we'll start here with the body. Body. Let's see if we can get through this section here before we go. 
So what is the material aspect? Well, it's a material body composed from elements of our material environment. And that's essential to complete humanity. Where did we come from? We came from dirt. Right? We're made out of dirt. Uh, that's what Adam was made of. And effectively, if you do an analysis of soil, you pretty much get everything that you need. It's not an organized form, but uh, everything you need to put, put a person together. The promise of resurrection guarantees the permanent corporeal status of all humanity. We will always have bodies, a status shared even by Christ in his unique position as the God-man. So 2 Corinthians 5, we know that if our earthly tent, that is our present bodies, our house is torn down, which is our present house is torn down, we have a building from God. So, again, speaking a little bit to the idea of the improvement of the resurrection body, right now we have a tent, temporary structure, you can put it up in an hour or two, depending on how good you are, right? But we're going to get a building, okay, so so an improved body. A house not made with hands, one that's eternal in the heavens. For in this house we groan. Some of us groan a little louder than others, right? Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in our tent, we groan, being burdened, because we not because we want to be unclothed, but rather because we want to be clothed in this new body in which the mortal will be swallowed up by life. Okay. Hebrews 2 speaks of this as well. Since children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise took partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil. So he's able to undo the dissolution of the body from the soul. And he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to be made human, complete with a body, so that he might then become a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God, because he had to have a body to be sacrificed, and yet is able to function as that perfect mediator between God and men, the one that Job was looking for so badly, some someone who could lay his hand on both of us and understand God from the standpoint of God and understand me from the standpoint of humanity, and Job is frustrated because there is no such person, and we find that there is one God and one mediator between God and man. What? The man. The human. Christ Jesus. And he holds this priesthood permanently, which is to our great benefit in that he continues to function as a priest for us in representing us to God uh, and he to us. The body is good. In fact, the Bible roundly condemns ascetic disregard of the body. We shouldn't abuse our bodies, which is, you know, you know, you look at a lot of the religious forms outside of Christianity. This is somewhat common uh, to abuse the body. And Colossians 2 says, well, a number of passages here speak to that problem. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humidity, humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul says, if I surrender my body to be burnt, but if I have no love, 
It profits me nothing. And even Paul tells Timothy in his situation, apparently has a weak stomach, he's trying to be a teetotaler, um, trying to uh, not, you know, not run the risk at all of in, engaging in drunkenness. So deciding he's only going to drink the water that was not very good water. And Paul has to say to him, you know, you're, you're killing yourself, man. <laughs> and you don't have to. Uh, you purify the water with just a little bit of that alcohol there so you can drink it safely and survive because you're, you're, there's no use uh, you simply, you know, giving up your body and your body wasting away. Now, the scriptures are critical of the flesh, the sarks, and he calls on his readers negatively not to walk according to the flesh or indulge it. He says also we are to crucify the flesh, and this has led some to confusion about the body. Some have seen Paul promoting a sort of sanctification by asceticism, that is, beating yourself, you know, flagellation, you know, whipping yourself or, or you know, denying yourself certain pleasures, physical pleasures. But Paul's use of sarks is probably metaphorical, references the remnants of sin that linger in the post-converted self, which is why the NIV consistently translates it, the sinful nature. It's not as though your flesh is any worse than your soul. You know, your, your, your body is any worse than your soul. They're both corrupted. In fact, the soul is probably the heart of your corruption, not your body, right? Okay, so there's nothing particularly evil about the body. But what what is evil is the remnants of sin that linger in us. So there's no reason to deny the body legitimate pleasures in the name of sanctification. Or oppositely, to tolerate sins committed into the body due to habits, addictions, and orientations. Say, you know, it's just, it's just my body. Who cares? Um, yeah. if, if I lose it, big deal. So let's abuse it. No, so neither one of those is an appropriate response to abuse our bodies because they're not important by damaging it or denying ourselves through asceticism the pleasures that God has given for us to freely enjoy in this world. So the body is 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 routinely understood to be a good thing. It's something to that God has given to us to enjoy. But the Bible does condemn wanton assent to physical lusts. You can't just give in to whatever your body craves. Which is why we have this command, flee immorality. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Take care of your body and clean it up. Paul says, I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I have preached to other, I, others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so, so, so Paul knows the idea of discipline, self-discipline, but not this, this idea of self-asceticism goes too far. We are to put to death, though, though, whatever belongs to our earthly nature, such as sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. That is the wanton uh, uh, granting of, of the body, whatever it should happen to crave. Instead, the Bible encourages us to enjoy fully 
the human appetites within the parameters defined by God. Uh, some some of these verses, you, you, you look at these and it's like, wow, this seems a similar this almost seems naughty uh, because you read these things, but 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 we shouldn't think that way. If when when we think in those terms, we're actually thinking incorrectly. God has given us great pleasures to enjoy. Ecclesiastes: Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting: to eat, drink, enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life that God has given him. This is our reward. God gives us these things. Ecclesiastes continues. Go then, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. God has approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. You know, clean yourself up and you know enjoy you know a, a night on the town dressed up. Let not be let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, we don't use oils quite in the same way, but you know you use. Use the perfumes and the, you know, I guess on the head there, you know, the hairsprays and the mousse and, you know, just, you know. What's that? 10 W40. 10 W40. We're talking about real cream there. A lot of the young people here don't know what you're talking about. He keeps going. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which she has given you under the sun. This is your reward in life and your toil which you have labored under the sun. Now Proverbs 5 goes further. Rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. And we could just pretty much pour on the whole book of Song of Solomon which, you know, it's like but Okay, I can't take too much of this. But but it, all of this is there for a reason. God's given us bodies, and he wants us to freely enjoy the pleasures that he intended for us. Now, the emphasis, of course, is on those that he has intended for us. Okay, they're, they're, they're just not wanton, but within the confines that God has given to us, we are to enjoy these things. Okay, so the body... And if you if you come here with this idea that bodies are bad, uh, you know, hopefully you've been sort of dissuaded from that that idea. Bodies aren't bad. God has given us bodies, and He wants us to enjoy them. Okay. Well, go from the sublime to the very serious here. Is there a theological obligation to treat corpses with dignity? Okay, if the body is important and good, and we should be celebrated. What about when somebody passes away? Does that body simply, is that just simply some old shell here that we can do whatever we want with? Or is there a continuing dignity that that body continues to possess even though the soul has gone? And with this is a question of cremation. Well, it's interesting to note here that in the Old Testament, a corpse is still referenced as a nephesh, a soul, okay, which is kind of funny because you don't think of a body being called a soul, and yet the, the scripture writers so treat the body with dignity because of what it was and for what it will be. Okay, So the body is still considered dignified and should be treated with dignity. 
And even though the immaterial aspect of the person has departed, a body that was once the material part of a human being possesses lingering dignity. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we must you know, partake of what we sometimes call Christian burial? Could there be a cremation? Well, setting aside instances of people who were consumed alive by fire in the scripture, there are at least five instances of deliberate cremation in the Bible. Joshua 7 speaks about the post-mortem cremation of Achan's family as part of God's prescribed judgment for sin. They were supposed to gather the family and everything they owned and burn it. 2 Corinthians 34 records favorably Josiah's cremation of the false priests who had desecrated the temple. You know, he, he actually takes them and burns them, and God speaks favorably. The burning of the bodies of Saul and his son, which was apparently done to preserve their dignity and to save them from public scorn, occurs without censure. So rather than let the... Uh, uh, the Philistine get a hold of the bodies, mutilate them, and tear them apart, and put their heads on spikes and, and, and such. Uh, uh, the 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 the, sweet, the quick decision was to burn them on the battlefield, so that this wouldn't wouldn't happen. There's no there's no commentary, good or bad here, uh, but in the context, it does seem like it's a positive thing. In Amos 2, God condemns Moab's burning of the bones of Edom, but the crime here was probably not so much the desecration of the bodies, but the, rather the fraternal vindictiveness that prompted the cremation. They, they would actually, you know, they, they would actually unearth the bodies and burn the bones. Well, you, you, you really have to be vindictive to do that, right? And that's probably what, what was the issue here. Not so much the act of the burning, but the sentiment that led to it. Number five, Amos describes the cremation of ten soldiers by, and the NIV is the undertaker, but is actually here described as the one who burns, apparently reflecting the idea that the undertaker in, 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 in this time period was not putting them in the ground, but was actually cremating them. Okay, it doesn't give a comment, plus or minus, but is there. Now, there's a lot of pagan overtones that are attached to some ritual cremations, and this is something that bothers a lot of people. Uh, it has been cited uh, as, as, a, as a reason for disapproving of the practice. The fact is, pagan burial rites are historically laced with pagan notions as well, particularly among the Chinese, the Egyptians, so this argument doesn't really compel Others point to the intrinsic horrors of burning and it's associated with judgment and argue against the practice. But it should be noted, too, that cremation can be very solemn and dignified. It doesn't have to be uh, a, a, a crazy or, or an undignified practice. The earliest and most prominent practice of Scripture is that of burial. Abraham and the rest of the patriarchs were buried in the land. In fact, the location was was very important that so 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 important that when Joseph was when when the exodus occurred they actually take Joseph's body and bring it to the promised land so he can be buried with his fathers God buried Moses so when God has a choice of what he can do with a body that uh, he's responsible for what does he do he, he buries Moses body 
But it's really difficult to deduce from this, though, that burial is necessarily normative just because the Bible is favorable toward it. The practice of baptism, belief in the resurrection, and the New Testament believer's association with the risen Christ are best communicated by burial. So the practice can have some value in supplying comfort to the bereaved or as an evangelistic tool. I mean, there, there is something about the idea of putting someone in the ground, often with a formula that he's going to be raised up in the latter day, that one can give some confidence to the one Who's, who's observing, who's grieving. Also, it can be an evangelistic tool. So I think there is some value in uh, Christian burial. Some, in fact, it's often called that. But we're reminded, though, that Christian burial is symbolic, not necessary. It's not as though if someone doesn't get buried, he's not going to get raised. Or if you, know, if you fall into the ocean and get eaten by sharks... It's not as though God's not going to be able to put you back together in, 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 the, in the last day. So it's not like it's theologically necessary, but it can be. A, there can be symbolic value to it. Other salient factors are financial. Cremation is cheaper. Practical. Burial is difficult in population centers, areas prone to flooding. To conclude, the Bible consistently commends the dignified treatment of bodies in view of what's, what they once were and what they will be. Vehicles necessary to the expression of human souls as image bearers. And while arguments may be mustered in favor of burial over cremation, the record is mixed at best and inconclusive. I don't think there's any anything that says you must engage in Christian burial and must not engage in cremation. Although I think perhaps there is there's something in, in me that sort of tilts towards the idea of burial because of its symbolic value and its value as an evangelistic tool uh, in, in certain circumstances. Questions, thoughts on that? I know that's often a question that comes up more and more, you know, is that an appropriate thing to do? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I thought about that when, mm-hmm. when my husband passed away yeah. because he had requested that he be cremated and yeah. his ashes spread over the mountains. And I wanted to honor that for him, but I knew that his family would need the visceral. They would need to see visual, him. Yeah. And so I did both. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't, I don't think there's a, a necessarily right and wrong, but there can be a prudent and imprudent, depending on the circumstances. Okay. Okay. Next week we'll start in on the immaterial aspect of man. Thanks for coming.